Morning, Fox Valley. Happy Sabbath. Welcome back home. It's nice to be back with you. I want to thank Dave and Pastor and your church leaders for inviting me here to Sacred Desk. Always nice to be in your company. We've been here a few times. For those of you who know us, our son lives in Fond du Lac. Uh, we're retired from the ministry. I don't know what that means. I don't think that's possible. In fact, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad it's not retirement. Um, our son's going to school there. He attends Sheboygan at the, at the presently with his seven-year-old boy, and so we support him in that fact. I want my wife to raise, raise your hand, Mom. This is my wife, Nidra. That's my bride of 49 years. Come this November. <laughs> our ministry has taken us a lot of places. Um, we've, been, we've served in Oklahoma, Virginia, and Maryland at our last church. Had the privilege of serving that church for 19 years. What a great journey that was. God's people are great anywhere you go. Have you noticed that? Um, what I want to share with you this morning. <laughs> By the way, Phyllis, where's Phyllis? Did she get? Okay, thank you for that song. Haven't heard that for a long time. Thank you for letting us sing it with you as well. Um, for those of you who remember the horse called Seabiscuit, we're going to use that as, an, as our example today in reference to not just an individual, but a horse. And you're going to hear this word often throughout today's message, a little banged up. You ever feel that way? Feel that way now? <laughs> I raise my hand with you. Before we begin, let us pray, please. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to come in your house of worship and grace and receive both of them from you and to have a chance in our meager, humble way to worship you and, and, and express our gratitude toward you for what you've done for us in our lives and especially in this past week. For the hardships that we have seen and met with you, and for the way, dear Father, you have taken our hand, put your hand around our shoulder, and guided us through, even through the valley of the shadow of death, as David explains. So I pray, dear Father, come, stand beside your servant, tell us what's on your heart that you want us to take home with us today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Seabrook. <laughs> Excuse me. The, the, the gospel, according to Seabiscuit. How in the world can you learn the gospel from a racehorse? Well, we're going to find out. This is quite a racehorse. For those of you who may have um, seen the movie that they put out or read the book or know the history behind this, this, uh, this horse, let me share what the author of the book says to start the story of this amazing horse. In 1938, near the end of a decade of monumental turmoil. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like today. The year's number one newspaper, newsmaker, I'm sorry, was not the president of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It wasn't the leader of Germany, Adolf Hitler, or the leader of Italy, Mussolini. It wasn't Pope Pius XI, nor was it the great New York Yankee slugger, Lou Gehrig, or the business tycoon Howard Hughes, or the king of, of cinema, Clark Gable. None of them 
was the top newsmaker of that year, 1938. The subject of the most newspaper column inches in 1938 wasn't even a person. You know where I'm going with this. It was an undersized, now check out, try and picture this horse in your mind. An undersized, crooked-legged racehorse named Seabiscuit. Now, there had, many, there had been many people who had eyed this horse, even experts, jockeys, owners, trainers. They had looked at this horse, and he was, he was, he was pitiful. What was wrong with him? He was, he was a little banged up. And a lot of individuals were not willing to take a chance on this horse. He just didn't look like a racehorse. And even those of an optimistic nature or attitude just didn't want to spend the time in trying to retrain this horse to see if there was any possibility that he was going to race at all. And so they looked to see, listen to this phrase, what they wanted to see. And when they did that, they overlooked the potential of this racehorse. Now, hang on to that thought. I want to, I want to share some examples in reference to human nature. All of us can identify with this. Sometimes, unfortunately, let's admit it to ourselves, we, we, we become uh, fault finders. One of the most fundamental principles of human nature is this. We tend to see what we are looking for. If you're looking for something negative, you can find something negative even in the most positive circumstances. We learned about that in our Sabbath school lesson this morning, about the Pharisees. And if you're looking for something positive like Jesus does and did, you can find something positive even in the most negative of circumstances. We tend to see what we're looking for. In Matthew chapter 12, you can see that principle. At the time, Jesus went through the grain fields on Sabbath. You know this story. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with certain deeds on the Sabbath, even getting the ox out of the ditch if necessary. But it is who that's behind the Sabbath and connected with the Sabbath. That's what's important. By the way, appreciate, uh, uh, is it Frank, Sabbath School Superintendent this morning, who gave the um, uh, presentation in reference to what's going on today. And by the way, I heard um, Janet Parshall, is it Janet Parshall? Anyone familiar with her? On the radio yesterday, and she was dealing with a similar subject to that, talking about pointing fingers and fault finders. It's not, it's not the subject of gender or marriage or who you're going to marry, or you cannot marry. What, 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 is, what is at stake here is the authority. Check this out. It is the authority of Scripture. I mean, Scripture is pretty plain on the subject, isn't it? But here you have fault finders who's tearing down the Scripture like the Pharisees, tried to tear down Jesus, find fault with him, try to get rid of him because he stood for truth. I'm telling you, the truth has a way of eventually getting to the surface always because that's what, that's what uh, Jesus represents. So here we are, the principle of Matthew chapter 12. Jesus and the disciples walking through the fault finders behind him all the way, everywhere he went, trying to find something wrong with him. And uh, in, their, in, in, in their opinion, Jesus was a little banged up, more than banged up. 
And so, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were ancient narcs, self-appointed fault finders. It seems they could find something wrong with just about everything. Matthew 19, verse, verse, I'm sorry, Matthew 12, verse 9 says this. Going on from that place, he, Jesus, went into their, their, their synagogue. Didn't feel at home there. Isn't that sad? Jesus went into a synagogue. Didn't even feel at home there. And he called it their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Here we go again. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to pluck wheat on the Sabbath? That was their first question. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees, but the Pharisees, looking for what they wanted to see, went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now, what would they have done? I'll pray for you, brother. Wait till the sun goes down, and then we can, then we can deal with this issue. What a sad situation. Seabiscuit. All the eyes that looked over this crooked-legged horse. Couldn't see a racehorse in him. You've got to be kidding. The Pharisees witness this amazing miracle with their own eyes, but they get hung up on the fact that Jesus does it on the wrong day. Now, I'm, I want to ask you a question. When is it ever a wrong day for Jesus to perform a miracle? They found something negative in the most positive circumstances. And why? Because... It says they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. That was their focus. Everything else was irrelevant, even a miracle. They were fault finders. They had critical spirits, and the people with a critical spirit can find something wrong with anything, even a miracle. <laughs> In stark contrast, Jesus had his amazing ability to find something positive in the most negative of circumstances. Matthew 12, verse 20. Is, is one of the most poetic and profound descriptions of Jesus' approach to life and his ministry. A bruised reed, the scripture said earlier, as she shared it with us. A bruised reed will he, not, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Have you ever been in your life where you feel like a bruised reed? Bruised means it's been bent or a wick, your light is just about to go out. I've been there, done that, didn't like it, didn't feel good. But Jesus made a difference in my life. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, as long as there is hope to revive the spirit. Nothing is more fragile than a bruised reed. Nothing is more tenuous than a smoldering wick about to go out and just about to turn into smoke. But Jesus was always looking for something salvageable. Hmm, interesting word. Salvageable, something redeemable. That's what he was looking for in me. In fact, that's what he saw in me. I, I ran away from home, joined the Navy, went 10,000 miles away in Vietnam twice, and he found me over there. I couldn't hide from him. <laughs> he found me over there, and my light was just about out. But he reignited that light. It was salvageable. There was something in me that was salvageable, redeemable. And I was all banged up. All banged up. One of my favorite story, uh, parts of the story of Seabiscuit is the initial meeting between the owner 
Charles Howard, the millionaire, and the trainer, Tom Smith. Hmm, what a story. Smith is taking care of an injured horse that others wanted to put down. This wasn't Seabiscuit at the time. Howard comes and asks him, this trainer who had the keen eye, who could see the salvageable, redeemable product in this horse. And Howard asks him, will he race again? And Tom says, no, not this one. He won't race. So why are you trying to fix him? Because I can, he said. I see the redeemable, salvageable aspect in this horse, and I can fix him. I can make him feel like a horse again. He may not race, but I can make him feel like a horse again. Every horse is good for something, he said. He could be a chart horse. He could be a lead point, and he's he's still nice to look at. Then he says what I think is the microscopic of the whole story. Now, listen to this. Take this home with you if you don't take anything else. You don't throw a whole life away just because it's a little banged up. (laughs) I love that. You don't throw a whole life away just because it's a whole... He might not be a racehorse, but he can can pull a cart. He's good to look at. There's something that he can do, even though he's a little banged up. Now, let's get back to Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit was banged up. (laughs) Listen to his history. (laughs) During one stretch early in his career, he lost 16 races in a row. He was the most misunderstood, mishandled, that he forgot how to be a racehorse. In fact, they used him to lose the race in order to help other horses learn how to win. Charles Howard, the owner, he was banged up. That was Seabiscuit. Now let's talk about the owner. He lost his son in a tragic auto accident, and he never fully recovered from that experience. His emotions were banged up. Tom Smith, the trainer, he was banged up. He was shunned by the racing community because he walked to the beat of a different drummer. He, he could see things that others gave up on in horses and in people, by the way. Red Pollard, now we get to the jockey. Seabrook's jockey was banged up. How was he banged up? He was abandoned at the race track at an early age in his childhood. His, his, his parents roamed the racetracks around the country. And one racetrack, they said, you stay here, we'll be right back. They never did come back. And he had one of the lowest winning percentages of any jockey anywhere, banged up. This story is about three men and a horse who are all banged up. But that's why I think it resonates with us, because all of us experience bumps and bruises. We're all banged up. But God doesn't throw away a life just because it's banged up a little. I thank him for that. A bruised reed will not break and a smoldering wick he will not. He will not snuff out. That is not his nature. Thank God. Now, the author of the book, The Story, her description of how these banged-up people became one of the most successful teams in racing history. (laughs) Everybody else had given up on them. The scattered lives of Red Pollard, Tom Smith, and Charles Howard had come to the intersection. Their crowded hour had begun. Now we're going to understand the gospel according to Seabiscuit. What a great description of church. We are scattered lives coming to an intersection. 
They had an eye for potential, an eye for potential. That's what Jesus sees in you and I, all banged up, but there's still potential there. It's redeemable. The horse, as the author describes the horse, the horse was a train wreck. For instance, he paced his stall incessantly. He broke into a lather the side of a saddle. He was 200 pounds overweight and chronically tired. Seabiscuit didn't run. He rampaged. When the rider asked him to speed, the horse slowed down. When he tried to rein him in, the horse faulted, took off, asked to go left. He dodged right. Wanting to go right, he, he, went, he went left. The most accomplished trainer in America at the time, his name was Sonny Fitzsimmons, gave up on Seabiscuit. He said he's just dead, dead lazy, just plain dead lazy. Everybody saw what was wrong with Seabiscuit. That was easy to see. They focused on his size. He was too small. They focused on his bad habits. He ate too much. He slept too much. They focused on his personality. He had a temper. Depends on what you're looking for. Going on to describe the horse. Countless horsemen had run their eyes over that plain bay body. None of them had seen what Smith saw. There was a limp in his walk, a wheezing when he breathed. Smith didn't pay any attention to that. None of that. It was there. He saw it. But he looked deeper. Smith lived by a single maxim, learn your horse. Each one is an individual, and once you penetrate his mind and heart, you can often work wonders, he said. Smith would literally spend hours on end almost motionless, like the horse whisperer, just watching and studying Seabiscuit, and he saw what no one else could see. Tom Smith had an eye for potential. So did Charles Howard. And the story says, Howard was blessed with an uncanny ability to see potential in unlikely places. <laughs> and there is why, and here's why my favorite sentence in, in the book says, Howard had a weakness for lost causes. Does that sound familiar to you from anyone? Someone that's very close to you in your Christian walk? Someone who has a cause for lost causes. Lost causes. Let's talk about lost causes for a second. God believes in lost causes. When I read those descriptions of Howard, I couldn't but think about Jesus. Jesus had the uncanny ability to see potential in unlikely places. And he had a weakness for lost causes. For instance, the demoniac was a lost cause, filled with a legion of demons. <laughs> Not just one or two, we're talking about legions, thousands, in one person. And God took care of it. What a God we serve. The woman with the issue of blood was a lost cause. Specialist. Mayo Clinic. John Hopkins. Nah, can't help you. Specialist after specialist called her condition incurable. The man born blind was a lost cause. There were no symptoms. There was no connection between his eye and his brain. And he couldn't see. The woman caught in the act of adultery, we talked about that in our Sabbath school lesson today, was a lost cause. She had broken her marriage vows. The leper, and according to Moses' law, she was to be stoned to death, along with her partner, by the way. 
The lepers were lost causes. The prostitute were lost causes. The tax collectors, Matthew, was lost causes. But Jesus had a weakness for lost causes. The bruised reeds, the smoldering wicks. You may feel like a lost cause. A relationship seems irreconcilable. A situation seems impossible. A hurt seems incurable. Lost causes. Banged up a little bit. You may feel like you're beyond despair, beyond discouragement, beyond doubt. You feel like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. You need to know, we need to know, that Jesus has a weakness for lost causes. This room is filled with those. But thank God, he has a weakness for us. Loves his children. He loves his children, obviously. What are we celebrating this month? He loves his children. So now let's talk about the new horse. Now he's been trained. He knows who he is. He knows what his potential is. This horse takes off. Seabiscuit had to be retrained and rehabilitated. But that is exactly what Howard Smith and Pollard did. The author says, Smith believed with complete conviction that no animal was permanently ruined. Just a little banged up. The author says he was a new horse in the 50th, the 50th, I didn't say the 5th or the 15th, the 50th start of his life. Seabiscuit finally understood the game. Smith and Pollard had unearthed in him, in Smith's word, a more natural inclination to run than any horse I have ever seen. This crooked little horse, this small little horse, this horse that wheezed at first, that was lazy, that would go left when they wanted to go right. On November 1, 1938, Seabiscuit won what is still widely regarded as the greatest horse race ever run. Every daily racing form handicapper had picked War Admiral from New York to win. He was taller. He was stronger. He, and you know, his record, he just had wins behind him. Everyone picked him. 95% of the sports riders picked War Admiral. The race was scheduled on a Tuesday, and why was that? It was to keep attendance down. <laughs> Pimlico had a maximum capacity of 16,000. It could seat 16,000. 40,000 people showed up, packed the racetrack that day, and 10,000 fans were gathered deep inside the track. Grantland Rice said it was the highest tension I have ever seen in sport. He said it was the type of tension that locks the human throat. I don't know how many are basketball fans here, but Kentucky won two games in the last seconds by a three-pointer. That's tension. Forty million Americans tuned in their radios to listen to the race, including the President of the United States. Got to hear this race, Mr. President. By virtue of his victory, Seabiscuit won the Horse of the Year honors in 1938. By the time his career was over, and this is after he started his 50th race, Seabiscuit won 33 races, set 13 track records. He earned a record, world record, $430,000 plus. In uh, probably in modern days, it'd probably be four or five million dollars over the course of his career. Nearly six times his purchase price. A little banged up. Now look what he did, because somebody had the potential, the eye to see the potential in this little banged up horse. God is in the business of giving second chances. He doesn't throw away a life just because it's a little banged up. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not smother. God will give you a second chance if you give him a second chance. In the word of George Eliot, it's never too late to be who you might have been. Never too late. There's a song. It's called, I'm a Pharisee in Recovery. Let me share the words with you. I'm a Pharisee. I'm among that group. I'm a Pharisee in recovery with new eyes I can see. The big sinner in me banged up. It's the way of my human heart to confess other people's sins, <laughs> reluctant to admit my part or the deeper problem within. But thank God he won't let me be or remain in my hypocrisy. Yeah, sooner or later I'll be on my knees, honest to God, a recovering Pharisee. I'm a sinner and a saint simultaneously. I'm not what I was or what I'm going to be. Still, I've got the old tendency to be all a wicked man can be, banged up. It takes more than singing gospel songs. It takes the life of the great I am to produce any good in me. He's the vine. I'm the branch. And I'm learning to be, honest to God, a recovering Pharisee. I need the God of all grace each and every day if I'm to run this race. <laughs> Sorry, it's getting personal now. If I'm to walk in his way, I don't have to be a slave to sin. I don't have to let the devil in because the Son of God lives in me. And he's promised to set me free. So Jesus, help my unbelief so I can follow you faithfully. You're the shepherd. I'm the sheep in your heaven to be. Honest to God, <laughs> a recovering Pharisee. You see, people generally live up to live down to our expectations. I think it was last quarter we talked about the social classes of people where social people classify individuals. People generally live up to live down to our expectations. Someone once said, treat a man as he is and he will remain as he is. Treat a man as he can and should be, and he will become as he can and should be. That is the gospel, according to Seabiscuit. Bruised reeds, smoldering wicks. The owner of the light will do everything they can to protect and keep the light going. Who's the owner of our light? That's Christ. We don't own it. It's a gift from him. If necessary, he will relight the flame if he has to. That's the gospel according to Seabiscuit. There's a story of a little girl who was banged up. She was born with a hair lip. And it was embarrassing to her. And so her story tried to cover up. She, she would tell people, well, when I was young, I, I fell and cut my lip on a broken piece of glass. Then came the annual classroom hearing test. You know how they used to do it? Remember this. When a whisper with your back to the teacher, she would say something to you to repeat if you heard it correctly, okay? Like, are you wearing new shoes? What did you bring to lunch today? <coughs> now, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> now, the teacher 
seeing the potential in this little girl who was embarrassed because of her physical appearance. When she came around to this little girl, she whispered something to her that made all the difference in the world to this little girl. And she said, I wish you were my little girl. Oscar Wilde once said, who, who, being loved, is poor? Who, being loved, is poor? The Gospel according to Seabiscuit. Banged up lives, people, animals, horses, whatever. In closing, let me share this with you. Song by Paul Overstreet. It's called the Halfway Home Cafe. <laughs> you gotta gotta listen to the stories of these banged up people and how they come out on top. Because they were loved by people. They because they they were observed by people who saw the potential in them as God's children. This is a story about a waitress in a cafe called the Halfway Home Cafe, and the stories that she heard as she would wait on tables throughout the cafe. I was pouring coffee for table number one. I couldn't help but hear what was going on. It got my attention when I heard a young man's voice saying, Sheriff, I'll be going now if it's all right with you boys. Those years I spent in prison stole too much time for me. I won't waste another minute. If I'm really free, I'm going home. My family's waiting for me. I'm going home. I'm amazed that they still love me. They forgive me of the bitter seeds I've sown. Heaven knows I've been away too long. I'm going home. <laughs> A burger and a special for table number eight. It was, I was busing number seven when I heard a young heart break. Banged up. Light about to go out. He told her it was over. They could never meet again. Then he found a taste of courage twisting on his wedding band. Her tears began to fall, but they could not touch his heart. I heard him say, I'm sorry, but it was all wrong from the start. I'm going home. My family's waiting for me. I'm going home. There's a million other stories from the Halfway Home Cafe. It's a never-ending Sega, and they're played out every day. But this one's finally over. The food's all put away, and the coffee pots stand empty at the Halfway Home Cafe. But over in the corner, in table number three, sits a father and a runaway. Well, it looks that way to me. I stand... I said, I hate to interrupt you, but it's really getting late. The young girl looked up smiling. She said, Mister, that's okay. I'm going home. <laughs> My family's waiting for me. I'm going home. I'm amazed that they still love me. They forgive me of the bitter seeds I've sown. Heaven knows, heaven knows I've been away too long. I'm going home. Anybody here? Want to go home? So do I. We have a father who 
who's trying to persuade the runaways to come home. We have a world that we live in that has gone insane. We don't even recognize this country for what it stood for when it was first organized by our forefathers, who were God-fearing men and who tried to maintain what God allowed this country to start with. And so here we are. We're all banged up. And we're tired of being here. And we're reminded that we're just passing through. Thank God. I don't want to stay here any longer. This is not home. Doesn't feel right. It's like Jesus going into the synagogue saying it, but I came into their synagogue. It's not my home anymore. And so we have a father that's beckoning to you and me. I'm going to ask a private question. If there's anybody that doesn't know this father, you need to listen to his call and respond. Come on home. This is where you belong. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the journey that you've allowed us to be a part of today on this Sabbath day. In this house of worship and praise and mercy and grace. Thank you, Father, that you've taken us all banged up and mended us, healed us. Thank you, Father, for all the stress that anyone here feels today. They can take the suitcase and turn loose of it and let you lift it off their shoulders. May they feel that freedom now. May we understand, dear Father, the beckoning of your voice. May we take this and share it with anyone else, dear Father, that you allow us to cross paths with. And give us those eyes that Jesus sees so that we can see the potential of someone else regardless of their circumstances. And so with that, Father, send us on our way. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Father in heaven, now take us on our way. And even though we're separated one from another, may we remain with each other in our thoughts and in our prayers. Be with us for the remainder of this Sabbath day, Father. Help us to stay close to you and keep you in mind. These things we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Have a good Sabbath.